Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and happy Friday. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We talked about the Nutcracker on the show this week. Sure enough. Something I've watched a bunch of times, and you have danced in a bunch of times. That is correct. Has your experience as a dancer in the Nutcracker given you strong opinions about how the Nutcracker should be staged? Because I sure have them. (laughs) No. In fact, I like seeing all the variations a whole lot. I remember as a kid, I had a unique experience in that I was part of a ballet company that was kind of in its infancy, and I was part of the ballet school there. And so I started out doing it one way, and then the ballet company, as it reached a certain level got a new artistic director that was much more experienced. And that person came in and was like, what have you been doing? And really (laughs) went back, like they were doing much more of like an original interpretation of it, which I didn't Mm -hmm. realize. And then it flipped and became much more akin to the Balanchine version. And so I already have that like, oh, you can actually do this different ways kind of mentality about it. So I've always liked seeing how other people did it. Yeah. The things that I feel really strongly about, some are more more minor than others. I really want the Christmas tree to physically get bigger. Oh, it has to. Uh, That I will say, I have, that is a thing that has to happen. I also really want the grandfather clock to, like, menace (laughs) Clara in some way. We need a growing Christmas tree. We need a menacing clock. I really prefer it when... Clara and the Nutcracker Prince are both children who are on the stage the whole time. I I don't like it when uh, they merge the Clara role and the Sugar Plum Fairy role. It's just my own personal preference. Um, And I didn't even really realize that they're, uh, just in terms of choreography that's like stretching back to 19th century Russia, I did not know that there was this uh, schism between like, traditional dressed as peasants or Cossacks, uh, Mm -hmm. Russian dancers, and hoops. I really like the, like, very athletic, leaping, jumping uh, Russian dance as it is often staged. And the first time that I saw one with the hoops, I was like, what was that? Not, I was not uh, pleased. I think I saw hoops first. Yeah, uh, I had already written this outline, and I watched the uh, the Maurice Sendak version that we talked about. Um, and that one just totally changed. A bunch of stuff is totally different in that, in a way that I thought was pretty cool. Like, instead of what I grew up with, which was uh, the Arabian dance, basically a harem, not a great thing to be having on the stage right now. It, it is instead a beautiful bird, um, which I felt like was a lot better. But uh, my husband was in the room with me and we got to the end of the ballet and he was like, where were the Russians? And I was like, they were there. It just looked a little different. I used to get really frustrated by like the local additions (laughs) to things. And part of it was when I was living in Atlanta, the Atlanta ballet had a, a panda bear costume in celebration of the panda at the zoo that had been born, and a dancer got very badly hurt, and I got really angry about it because I was like, there's not even supposed to be a panda in the Nutcracker. Uh, but having researched this and realized, like, how many places really kind of are adding their own local touches, I 
I don't, I'm no longer so angry about that. As long as the costume is safe for the dancers to be dancing in. (laughs) Right? Do you have a favorite of the Kingdom of Sweets? Or a favorite segment of the ballet period? I I have always really loved the snowflakes just before the end of Act One. It's beautiful. That music is beautiful. That yeah, that's another thing. There needs to be real snow happening on the stage <laughs> during no. the snowflakes. No. no, as a dancer, that's a no. I just always found it dangerous. I I pro- now that you mention it. <laughs> Right. That I mean, seems... when you think about how much time, I mean, this this happens with any performance space, right? How much time dancers like kind of prep their shoes to be the way they like and have the level of grip that they like. And then often you get in a performance space and it's not like the space you have been oh, practicing sure. in at all. And so to throw another like element in there is like, oh, for heaven's sakes. What? Yeah. Okay. How are we going to? Have to. You How know. are we going to deal with this substance on the stage? Right. So for me, I'm always like, "That's okay. I don't need the snow." Because <laughs> I just think about those poor dancers being like, "Yeah, how much do I have to restrain this steps to make sure I don't slip?" Or now I'm sure lots of companies have a way that they manage it that makes it very, very safe. I don't want to make it seem like people are being willy nilly, but there's just always any time you add an element that's not part of rehearsal. Sure. Obviously, they rehearse with all the tech stuff. That's what a tech rehearsal is for. But, like, it's still, like, a whole different... But you're still learning it without that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just as my time as an audience member, like, never never saw anything go wrong with the snow part. What I did see the last time I saw the Nutcracker, which was here in Boston, <laughs> during the scene where the children fight over the Nutcracker and the Nutcracker breaks a part of the Nutcracker flew into the orchestra pit and it it was like that scene in The Lord of the Rings when they knock the bucket down into the well. <laughs> it went on for so long of this piece of Nutcracker ricocheting around. ricocheting all around the orchestra pit. Uh, and during intermission, like, I, as the as the orchestra was filing out, I saw somebody with this Nutcracker piece in their hand, and I was like, man, that's... I have seen... I've seen uh, Clara's shoe go into the orchestra pit before, but, like, this was the loudest, most... <laughs> most disruptive orchestra pit incident. That's funny. Of the sweets, I always really loved coffee. And I had seen it primarily for a long time, not as a harem style, but as like a pas de deux, like a duet. Okay. That was just, I find that music very, very beautiful. And I it's one of those things where if the right dancer is cast and the choreography is right, it just becomes this incredibly beautiful language study of like what the human body can do with somebody who is an absolute maestro at managing their own limbs. You know what I mean? Oh, sure. Um, and so for me, I'm, a, I'm like as a kid, the first time I really saw it danced beautifully, I was like gobsmacked. I I swear I literally had like the mouth agape, like what wonder was that? Um, yeah. <laughs> and so as that has, you know, as I've gotten older and that becomes a thing that is more critically examined, it's there's that part of me that's like, oh, I wish it could... I don't want ever to see a woman in a harem style, but like I just I wish I could divorce all of the the critical and necessary critical thinking about it and just retain that wonder of youth. But that is the unfortunate thing about being a thoughtful 
person. Right. Not that I'm always, but... Um, I know the School of the Arts has updated a lot of their choreography, and I don't know... Uh, I, like, I have seen, I feel like, a televised production with newer choreography once from the North Carolina School of the Arts, and I, I do not know the details of how it has been updated. But when I was a child, it was very problematic. Like, the the Arabian dance was, it was a very harem scenario. There was a hookah involved. Um, the Chinese dancers had, like, the the like the stereotypical ballet posture of having their index fingers raised. Yes, I definitely uh, saw a lot of that. Yeah. Um uh the the Spanish one was like very, very like castanets, kind of like a flamenco situation. Um and then the the Russian dancers would bring the house down with their leaping up in the air and doing splits and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, like looking in hindsight at, at the way those were staged when I was a kid, I'm like, yikes. Yeah. <laughs> I have also always had deep, deep fondness for Waltz of the Flowers. I just love that music. Oh, yeah. I love everything about it. Beautiful. When I was a child and I wanted to take piano lessons, but I also did not have the discipline to practice, that was, I I think that was the piece that finally led to me not doing piano anymore. Because I wanted to, I wanted to learn Waltz of the Flowers for my piano recital, and, like, what was available was harder than I really... I could have done it if I had really applied myself to it, but it was just harder enough <laughs> that I didn't want to. Uh, but, yeah, that's, like, another nod to how my, like, deep love of the Nutcracker as a child. I picked my piano recital piece as a thing that came from the Nutcracker. Yeah, it's funny. As you were doing this, my brain just was, like, flashback after flashback. Like, I remember, you know being huddled under Mother Ginger's skirt one year and how sort of thrilling and delightful that one was to perform as a kid. Like, that was the one mm-hmm. everybody wanted to do. I started out as a mouse. I was low tier initially. And then, like, you know, following years, I got to be one of Mother Ginger's children and then eventually got to do... Um, I was part of the core for the the snowflakes and the flowers and did some of the acting parts in the first act that were, that were minor characters. But after that, I... Um, developed and my body was not good at ballet anymore. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Puberty pretty much ended my my plot for ballet. But, um, yeah, I, I still think about it so lovingly in many ways, even though it was, um, you know, sometimes grueling to work on those shows. But I don't know. I, I credit the years that I did The Nutcracker, particularly the early years, with really being a pretty influential aspect of, like, my love of the visual arts in general, theatricality. Mm-hmm. Like, re- I remember the first time during a tech rehearsal that the tree worked. Oh, yeah. And being like, oh, wow, you can do some cool stuff in a theatrical setting that really mm-hmm. impacts people. Well, that is neat, and I want to always have this in my life. Like, that was a big... Um, I literally remember the tree jerking and not working, and then working and being like, oh, yeah. success looks amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, cracker. Uh, did you see, ooh, they may do it still. I haven't checked for it in several years, but they used to do for a while, at least on our local PBS station, a thing where they had several nights of Nutcracker that were different iterations of it. I don't know, but that sounds really cool. It was amazing because you would have the very traditional 
uh, Balanchine style, you would have like uh, one that I saw, and I don't, I feel terrible because I cannot remember um, to attribute credit who choreographed it or even what company it was, but it was very modern. And I remember thinking, I don't know that this will work because as much as I said, I love seeing different versions, they're still, for me, it's very much rooted in like, traditional ballet so to be like oh a modern dance version no but in fact it was amazing so (laughs) yeah so if you get a chance to see something like that especially when you see like three different ones in three nights Mm -hmm. it just kind of expands how you think about it and like how different people can take a thing and the kernel of the thing remains the same but like it blossoms in different ways and that's always really beautiful yeah art we love it we do we do we did some more eponymous foods this week we did i love these they're so fun but um (laughs) i definitely um have some thoughts Uh (laughs) about sylvester graham but i do want to mention that i love a good caesar salad so so um Last time we did one of these, I said I I like all the component parts of a Cobb salad, but I don't think I've ever ordered a Cobb salad from a restaurant menu. Opposite experience with Caesar salad, but it's embarrassing because uh, at two different periods of my life, one in high school, into college, and then the other not that long after college, for periods of years, I was a vegetarian. And let me tell you, vegetarian options... In sin on the ground, they were not like they are today, correct. Um, and so in the 1990s, if I were in a situation where I needed to get a meal at McDonald's, what I would get was a Caesar side salad, which did not have chicken or anything on it. I would like leave the bacon bits, I think it came with bacon, I would not put the bacon bits on there, and french fries. There's two problems with this scenario. <laughs> Problem number one is that Caesar dressing a lot of the times has Worcestershire sauce in it, which contains anchovies. It is not vegetarian. And the other thing is we learned as a society after all of this that McDonald's french fries were flavored with beef flavoring, a thing I did not know when I was shoving them into my face. And that's why they were so delicious. It's one of many things that I thought I was eating as a vegetarian option in my teens and early 20s that I learned later were not actually vegetarian but man i don't I think s- that's embarrassing i think a lot of people are in that boat still do love a caesar salad though oh me too i um i need a little more protein than a, a blank caesar offers i gotta have some chicken or something on there yeah yeah <laughs> i'll, I'll have the um, shrimp on there i like it i sometimes will just throw also um like a handful of pistachios in there which mm-hmm. probably mortify caesar cardini but how do you feel about the anchovies i'm down with anchovies okay. i love them yeah I love an anchovy on a pizza. I love an anchovy right out of the can. I mean, I know they're not for everybody, but I love them. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I'm into them. Uh, the first time I had them was on a Caesar salad, I'm pretty sure. And I just did it for kicks. And I was like, oh, this is actually pretty good. I um, The first time I ate anchovies, I remember super distinctly because it was one of those times that very clearly illustrates how if kids have no knowledge of a thing, mm-hmm. they just will engage with it Mm -hmm. without... And I had found in our cupboard when I was, like, little, six or seven, a can of anchovies. And I just popped it open and ate them. Mm -hmm. 
And one of my older sisters came in and discovered this and was like, whoa, like I may as well have been eating live spiders. She was horrified. And I was like, what? They're salty and delicious. And so that was just one of those things where I was like, I loved anchovies from a very early mm-hmm. age. Um, and I continued, oh, man, anchovies on pizza is where it's at. Delicious. But really, I have so many thoughts about Sylvester Graham. Yes. Really does remind me a lot of John Harvey Kellogg in terms of his mentality and the focus on food going along with yeah that. Um, they're often um, kind of mentioned together as being part of that beginning of the movement for for people to really carefully monitor and um, edit what their diet consisted of. Sure. Um, which I have to say, like... If living by Sylvester Graham's standards made you live a long life, I'm not sure how much you enjoyed it along the way. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's also the whole, like, beyond beyond the aspects of it that are tied to the idea of weight loss, there's, like, this whole trend about the idea of food being clean or not clean. Uh-huh. That's really damaging to people. And, I like, this, is to me, is an early iteration of that. And it, Kind of a dramatic iteration. I mean, like, the level of morality that he attached to every morsel a person consumes is so extreme. And I I just find myself wondering if he was any fun to be around ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, he clearly had some pretty serious hang-ups about sexuality that are uh, unfortunate. Mm-hmm. I know. I also kind of, I had to chuckle at his whole excerpt that we read where he talks about how bakers are the ruination of things. And he's like, I don't want to badmouth anybody, but here we go. (laughs) It's just just the the like, no, no, everyone's really evil, but let me just focus on bakers and everything they do wrong. And, you know, it's one of those things where I'm like, is that really moral to just publicly go after an entire sect of the population (laughs) based on their job? I don't know, Mr. Morality. Maybe think about that for a minute. (laughs) Yeah, it it seems very unpleasant. I want a cozy bed. I want a warm shower. Thank you. Mm. (laughs) I want to eat some s'mores just for spite at this point. I know we have told this story before, but I kept thinking about there was an incident with Tracy and I and s'mores, dear listeners. (laughs) (laughs) So good. When we were still working in an office on, like, the How Stuff Works website, and Tracy was, were you, I don't remember, editorial director? Something website like director? I don't remember what your title was. And I was uh, one of the editors, and we were, like, the only two people working during the holidays. Yeah, it was, like, over Christmas, and everybody was off, and I was out of vacation days, so I was working, and... And I hadn't worked for the company all that long, so I either didn't, or I I just figured I'd work through the holidays and use vacation at other times. But we had this idea of, like, if we're going to be here at the office together and nobody else is here, we should at least make it fun. And so we made the most ridiculous s'mores of mm-hmm. all time, which were graham crackers. But then um, if you have ever had cocoa peeps shaped like reindeer... Yep. <laughs> I highly recommend. And then we use peppermint bark for the chocolate layer. And I know people say the sugar high is a myth, but we ran around those hallways screeching like (laughs) banshees for a good good. 15 minutes. And I'm like, that's a sugar high right there. That's so good. 
We did them in the microwave. So we didn't have a yes. stove or anything in the office. So we got to watch them explode. It was yep. beautiful. Yep. I, that is one of my fondest work memories of all time. Oh, yay. Like, just so funny and hilarious that we were just giddy to eat s'mores while everyone else, ha-ha, was off. They Made missed out. Your peeps. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And Best pepper bark. Yeah, we talked about recreating them, and I don't think we ever did the recreation of them, in part because I started trying to take time off at the end of the year. Right. Well, at some point, when we are back in the same place, I don't care what time of year it is, we're going to carpe s'mores. We're going to make it happen. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, If you are headed into a weekend, a weekend that involves time off, we hope that it is fun and that you eat something delicious uh, and that you love. And if you do not have time off, we hope you still manage to sneak in some delicious food, but also that it goes as smoothly as possible. We will be right back here tomorrow with a classic and then on Monday with a brand new episode. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.